Christmas. Kind of leaves you hanging there. Yeah. Well, come back next week and you'll find out the conclusion of this ongoing little uh, mini drama we've had every single week in this series. Hey, it's good to have you with us today here in Bellingham. Those of you in Skagit, glad that you're with us today. And I cannot wait for Saturday night when I get to be with you for your Christmas Eve Eve services. Look forward to seeing some of you I haven't seen in a while, meeting some of you I've never met, and some of your friends and families. Make sure you're there Saturday night. Bring stuff for our gift of grub and, uh, and bring some friends and family with you. We're going to have a great celebration. Those of you in Boca Raton at the Trinity Church of God, I want to wish you a very, very Merry Christmas, and it's good to have you. And those watching online, thanks for joining us today. If you're in Whatcom or Skagit counties, we would love to have you at one of our Christmas Eve services next weekend, not just watching on live. That's all great. We're like Skyping in, but we'd love to give you a hug and have you here. If you don't want to hug, that's okay too. But it's good to have you. And we're in this series, Finest Gifts. And uh, there have been times I've been in gatherings where someone uses as a question as kind of an icebreaker of, tell us, you know, one of the best, uh, most memorable, most meaningful, significant Christmas gifts you've ever received. And, and there's great answers. Maybe it's from a childhood or a, a rough season you're going through or when you're first married or whatever. I think a better question that I would like to hear is, tell me about the oddest Christmas gift you ever received. Now, that would be interesting. That'd be some fun stuff to hear the bizarre things that you got. And probably for some of you, the answer would come out of a, a party event that you've been a part of called a white elephant gift exchange. Now, I just say, I think white elephant gift exchange, if you've never experienced that, put that on your bucket list. You got to experience that before you die. I've gone to several of them and they're a lot of fun. I've seen basically there's two different kinds of white elephant gift exchanges. One of them is where they'll say, bring a gift that's somewhere between $15 and $25, and we'll exchange it. And then there's all these, you know, trading and taking and, and, and uh, freezing them. And on those kind of gatherings, you walk away with movie tickets or, or potpourri or a candle or maybe an iTunes card, and it, it's all fine. The ones I really like is when they say, the, the spending limit is $1. Get creative. And then people go to their closets and their attics and their basements and their garages and they find the most awful thing that their grandmother gave them 20 years ago and they just couldn't put themselves to throwing it away and they bring that. Now that's some fun stuff. And then when you get stuck with this albatross of what do I do and it gets frozen with you and now you're stuck with it, that's a really cool thing. Now, if you've ever played a, a white Christmas or a, a white elephant Christmas gift exchange, you might wonder, well, how did this even start? Legend has it. I don't know if there's any validity to this. Legend has it. It started with the king of Siam years ago that when he had a cohort that he was a little displeased with, not enough to kill them or banish them from the kingdom, one of the things he would do to kind of punish them is that he would gift them with an albino elephant, a white elephant. It was an odd gift. 
It was an extravagant gift. And because they were so rare, it was seen as a sacred gift. But the real reason he would give it is because it would be a burdensome gift. Someone gives you an elephant, you have to feed it. You have to clean up after it. You have to house it. And and it would become this burden for you. And if you look at a white elephant gift as something that is odd, extravagant, sacred, and burdensome, I think, and you got to hang with me on this one, I think that we could say the gift we're going to look at today that was given to Jesus was truly, in, in that respect, a white elephant gift. It was an odd gift. It was an extravagant gift. It was a sacred gift, but it was a burdensome gift. And so today I want us to look at that. We've been in this series looking at a very, very familiar passage out of the Christmas story, one that most of us are extremely familiar with. When the Magi came and presented their gifts, it's found in Matthew chapter 2, this verse 11. On coming to the house, they, the Magi, saw the child, Jesus, with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him, and they opened their treasures, and they presented him with gifts, with gold. Now, two weeks ago, Pastor Kip here in this uh, room and Pastor Brian in Skagit talked about gold and the symbolism of gold being fit for a king and the king of kings being Jesus. But there wasn't just gold, but, but frankincense. And last week we talked about frankincense. And, and, and I'm not going to start anything on fire today. And, and we're not going to have a bunch of smoke like we did last week. But this frankincense, representative of Jesus being the high priest, the great high priest and the sacrifices that was made in the temple... And then today, we look at this one, and that is is myrrh, this gift of myrrh. Now, again, as I said last week, if it weren't for this one verse in the Bible, if it weren't for Matthew 2, 11, most of us would never, ever use the word myrrh. We may have never heard of the word myrrh. But because of this verse, we probably use it at least once a year at Christmas time when we talk about this, the thing of myrrh. Now, the thing about myrrh It was an odd gift, and I'll tell you why, but even just looking at the word, it's an odd word. I mean, look at the spelling of this word. There's two R's and an H. Is the H necessary? Does it mean myrrh? (laughs) Why do you need an H on the end of a double R? And then the vowel is a Y, which is an odd one anyway. It's an outlier. It's like this this not really... We were raised saying the vowels are A-E-I-O-U and sometimes Y. Why is it that Y can't figure out if he's a vowel or a consonant or if she's a vowel or a consonant? Sometimes you feel like a vowel, sometimes you don't. You don't even know. This is like a wannabe vowel, but not quite there yet. So it's just the word itself is just weird, the spelling of it. But it's not just the spelling of the word. It was an extravagant thing because in those days, pure myrrh, ounce for ounce, would have been more costly and more valuable than gold. So it would have been a very extravagant gift. Now, you might be saying, okay, its spelling's a little bit odd, but I still don't see it as being an odd gift, and I'm not sure how it's sacred, and I'm not sure why it would be burdensome to Jesus. Well, I want us to look into that today, and we're going to do just like we did last week, give you some backstory so you understand some context with it, how it relates to Jesus' life, why it was significant for Jesus, how it played out in his life, and how it impacts us today. And again, like last week, we're going to kind of be all over the Bible, and there's going to be some loose ends that hopefully at the end all get braided together and make sense. If not, it's good having you here today. Anyway. So to understand this, we need to kind of look at the backstory of why this would have even been a gift. And to do that, we're going to go to the same area that we looked last week on the frankincense when God is giving some very specific instructions to Moses about what to do with this this new nation that he's calling as his own people uh, as they're starting their, their life together. 
And in this, he gives some instructions about, you know, last week it was about the incense. And then this week it's a, that we're going to look at, it's about uh, this myrrh. And he gives it to him kind of in a story problem. It says in Exodus chapter 30, God says to Moses, take the following fine spices, 500 shekels. Now we need to stop right there because the word shekels might throw you. Because later in the New Testament, when they talk about shekels, it's a coin. But in the Old Testament, especially, a shekel was a basic unit of weight. Just like if we use the word pound, in some countries, that would be a monetary uh, amount. In other countries, it would be a weight. Same idea with shekels. Now, just so you know, the basic unit weight of a shekel, a shekel for our, our purposes, was a little less than a half an ounce. If you're from Canada, it would have been grams. I don't know how many. That's why I don't live in Canada. I don't get the metric system on this stuff. So half an ounce and some grams for your calculation. So 500 shekels roughly equates to 12 and a half pounds. So God says to Moses, take 12 and a half pounds, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh. Here it is. This is the start of this, what we're talking about, this myrrh. So you take it in, the, in its liquid form. Half as much. This is a story problem. And apparently Moses didn't do so well in math because God gives him a story problem and says, oh, forget it. I'll just give you the answer. Half as much. Okay. That is 250 shekels. If you can't figure it out, Moses, <laughs> you know, slow-mo, he's getting it finally. Okay. So you get half as much of a fragrant cinnamon. So we'll put that into the mixture as well. 250 shekels, again, about six and a quarter pounds of fragrant cane, back to 500 shekels of cassia, all according to the sanctuary shekels. So you have this 1,500 shekels of this concoction of, of myrrh and cinnamon and cassia and cane, all this stuff. And it's, it's about about 37 and a half pounds. And then he says, oh, and, and a hen of olive oil. Now you all know what a hen is, but a hen, for those who don't know, is roughly a gallon. So now you got all this concoction, he says, and then throw a gallon of olive oil in it and mix it all together. Make these into a sacred anointing oil, a fragrant blend, the work of a perfumer. It will be the sacred anointing oil. And God says very specifically, this recipe that I gave you for this sacred anointing oil is not to be used for common things. Don't use this recipe in your home. Don't use it with your cattle, with your herds, with your, your flocks. Don't use this recipe except for the holy things of God. It will be a sacred anointing oil. And then God goes on and gives Moses the instructions of what to do with this concoction, this, this myrrh-based sacred anointing oil. He said, I want you to go around and I want you to anoint all of the articles in the tabernacle, all these instruments used in the worship of Yahweh in the tabernacle. And in anointing them with this sacred anointing oil, you, and here's the old church word, you consecrate them, which means to set them apart. You set them apart. They are holy as unto the Lord. They're not for common purposes. They're for God's purposes. They're for his holy purposes. When you anoint them with oil, you consecrate them as unto the Lord. Now, some of you are already seeing the connection. Myrrh, holy, sacred oil, anointing for God's purposes, set apart, Jesus. You're kind of seeing those, those dots connecting. It wasn't just the instruments or the articles in the tabernacle. You remember last week we talked about when God said to Moses, I want you to take uh, Aaron and his sons as priests. So Aaron, and then there was um, Nadab and Abihu, um, and uh, was Eleazar and Ithamar. I remembered all four of them. Couldn't get those last night out of my head. So, uh, so he says, I want them to be set apart. 
as priests to stand in the gap between people and God. And when you do, when you appoint them as priests, I want you to anoint them with this holy anointing oil. As you anoint these priests, you are consecrating them. You are setting them apart for God's purposes, for God's use, for God's holy uh, purposes, whatever he would have. And apparently, when this happened, they didn't just like take a little, a little dab to anoint them. If you're familiar with Psalm 133, the opening verse says, how good and pleasant it is when the brothers dwell together in unity. But then it goes on to say, it's like precious oil, precious oil flowing off of the head of Aaron, precious oil flowing down across his beard, the oil pouring down off of the the head and the beard of Aaron onto his collars of his robe. So apparently it wasn't just a little dab will do you. Apparently they really doused you when they anointed you with oil and you're shampooing for weeks to try and get all this out of your hair, poured it all over this as the priest. Now you begin to see that the myrrh consecrates, sanctifies something for God's use, and it was used for the priest. You see the connection with Jesus, the great high priest. Not only that, but later when Israel would have a king, they would request a king, and God says, you really don't want a king. It's not going to be good for you. And they, they, wouldn't, they were relentless in their pleading. He says, okay, fine, you'll get a king. So he says to Samuel, who is a prophet, He says, I want you to go and appoint Saul as the first king of Israel. And when he went to appoint Saul, he anointed him with this sacred oil to consecrate him, to set him apart for God's purposes, to to make him holy unto the Lord. Saul fell, fell out of favor with God, and God says, I want you to anoint the next king of Israel. So he goes to the house of Jesse and says, Jesse, I need to meet your sons because one of your sons is the king. Goes, no, 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 no. All down the line says, man, I must have got my signals crossed. But I, I, this is my paraphrase. Is that it? He goes, well, we do have one other son. His name was David. They bring David in, and Samuel anoints David as the next king of Israel. And this happens again and again. There's a time when Elisha, the prophet, anoints a, a young man named Jehu, whose father was Jehoshaphat, and anoints him as king. So now you see this, this whole picture, this, this gift of myrrh was this sacred anointing oil where they would anoint the priest. And you can understand with Jesus, he is not only a priest, he's not only a high priest, he is the great high priest. And they would anoint the king, and Jesus is not only the king of Israel, he is the king of kings. But there's something that even transcends all of that. Because Jesus, while he is the great high priest, and while he is the king of kings, he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, which is also referred to as the anointed one. So when this was given to this baby, it was this picture that Jesus would be a high priest, he would be a king, but he would be the anointed one, the Messiah. Fast forward, in Luke chapter four, there's this time when Jesus is starting his public ministry. He goes back to his hometown to Nazareth. Anytime he goes home, he goes to the church, to the Nazarene church, because it's the synagogue in Nazareth that makes it a Nazarene church. So he goes to the Nazarene church on this Sabbath, And he pulls out the scroll of Isaiah and he opens it up to Isaiah 61 and he begins reading these words from the prophecy that had been given 700 years earlier. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. He has, watch this, he has anointed me. Not a prophet has anointed me, not a priest has anointed me, not the Sanhedrin, not some man-made council, not some church. The sovereign Lord has anointed me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He's anointed me to preach freedom to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, the the release of the oppressed, to declare the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus says, God, God has anointed me. 
to do this. Acts chapter 10, Peter is talking to Cornelius and telling him the story of Jesus. And he says about Jesus that Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit to do miracles in these good works. So you see with Jesus, this idea of myrrh being this sacred anointing that would call him out as the high priest, the great high priest, the king of kings, the Messiah. And you say, so what's so odd or burdensome about that? I mean, that's beautiful. Well, myrrh, the word itself, is literally translated bitter, bitter. And maybe this is not just the anointing of the Messiah, but a bitter cup that he would have to drink. Again, let me just kind of go all over the scripture for a minute. Some of you may remember, if you've ever read the book of Ruth or when we've studied it here, that Naomi goes off to a foreign land and her husband dies and her two sons die. And when she comes back home, she's a broken woman and all of her neighbors say, hey, isn't that Naomi? And she says, don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. She says, call me Mara. Because Mara means bitter. She's bitter. Same derivative, myrrh, Mara. There's a place in, in Exodus chapter 15 where God's people are going through the wilderness. They come to the plain of Mara. It's called the plain of Mara. And there they drink the water and it's horrible. It's bitter. Now, I'm not the smartest guy on the planet but when you come to a plane called bitter, I would say don't drink the water. I mean, it just makes sense to me. You go to a place called bad water, water stay away from the water. You go to the, go to the grocery store and it says expired milk, stay away from it. I mean, that just, I mean, it's just me. So they go to this place called Mara and there's bitter water. Now, while the myrrh, this bitter thing, was used most uh, used frequently for anointing priests, anointing kings, the anointed one, the, the sacred things of the, of the tabernacle, the most frequent use of myrrh had to do with using it for embalming and burial. Now, when you look at myrrh as this anointing oil for Jesus, as, as the high priest, as the king of kings, as the, the anointed one, that's great. But when you start talking about embalming and burial, there's kind of this odd, burdensome, dark side that comes with this gift. So Mary has this baby, and these wise men show up for the baby shower. That's the problem right there. I mean, you've all heard if they were wise women versus wise men, they would have asked directions, got there on time, helped deliver the baby, cleaned the stable, given a casserole, started a meal chain, and bought some, some gifts that were actually practical. They got a baby shower, and th three men show up. That's a problem. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, they probably had a wrench, too. So this one shows up with... Myrrh. And it's an odd, odd baby shower gift. I mean, think about this. If you were having a baby shower, and there people are bringing in all these cute little onesies for your little baby and a teething ring that they'll need in a while and a little Johnny jump up and all these little cute gifts. And then someone comes in, a guy comes in and presents you with this envelope and it's a very, very costly gift. But you open up the envelope and it's extravagant in that it costs a lot, but it's, it's like a a burial plot at Green Acres Cemetery? Bring it, bring it, bringing that to a baby shower? That uh, seems like a bit of an odd gift for a baby shower. Or, or maybe someone else says, here, this one, this one, you're going to need this. And it, you open it up, and look, 
It's a prepaid funeral services all taken care of by the funeral home. It's like it's already paid. Like, why? You, you giving that to me? That just seems like a kind of a dark, odd present for a baby shower. Now, this myrrh with this kind of this dark, burdensome side is not the only time there's this kind of strange mystery with the birth of this baby. There was a time when Jesus was eight days old. And Mary and Joseph take him to Jerusalem to the temple to be circumcised according to the law of Moses, that he would be circumcised on the eighth day. So they take little Jesus there and, and, and to be circumcised, and they have an encounter with this old guy named Simeon. Scripture implies they've never, ever met this man. He doesn't know who they are. And, and, and you know what? Hold on to that, that thought. Do you remember in the movie Lion King when Mufasa has everybody come out to Pride Rock? And Simba has been born. And then Rafiki comes along and takes little Simba and holds him up in front of the people. Remember that? You guys have never seen Lion King? Okay, I know what to get you for Christmas. Okay, watch it sometime. Anyway, that scene from Disney, stolen out of the Christmas story, taken straight out of the pages, because I think that was similar to the scene that happens when Jesus is taken as, as an eight-day-old baby. Mary and Joseph come into the temple. Remember, they're just a poor little couple from Nazareth. No one knows them. It's not like people are going, dude, Mary and Joseph from the nativity. It's them with baby Jesus. We've been waiting hundreds of years. It's them. You know, no one knows who they are. And they come into the temple, and here's this old guy, Simeon. Simeon, it says, has been waiting for the consolation of Israel, whatever that means. And he has been told by the Lord, he will not die until he sees the coming of the Christ, the Messiah. And one day he's in his life doing whatever he's doing, watching Matlock or whatever old people do. And the Holy Spirit says to him, go to the temple today. And he goes to the temple and there he sees this couple. And again, it's implied they didn't grow up together. It wasn't like, oh, Uncle Simeon. They don't know each other. And so here comes Mary and Joseph, this young couple with this eight-day-old baby. And here comes this old man, and he takes the baby. And you can just imagine him going, and he says some things that are a little bit odd. They're probably going, what's up with this old guy? So Simeon, this is my paraphrase. You can read it on your own. Simeon says, God, I can die now, which is an odd statement as well. I can die now because I have seen your salvation, the light of the revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. I can die. And then it says this, Simeon blessed them. And then he said to Mary, not to Joseph, not to Jesus. He said to Mary, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And I can imagine Mary saying, I don't really even know what that means, but that sounds really important. And then Simeon adds this line, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. That's an odd statement to say to a new, new mother. Congratulations on the newborn. A soul, a sword will pierce your soul too odd. Now, here's the thing. One of the things that separates myrrh from the other gifts is that myrrh bookends Jesus' life. Not so gold, 
and not so frankincense. But you see myrrh at the cradle, you see myrrh at the cross, and you see myrrh at the crypt of Jesus. Obviously at the cradle, when the Magi come to the house, and there they present this myrrh. But 33 years later, Jesus is hanging on the cross, and in Mark's gospel it says, then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. They're presenting to him myrrh again now as he's hanging on the cross, this, this concoction of a painkiller, this anesthetic of sorts that they offered him, and he refuses it. And he dies. And while he dies with criminals, most often a criminal's body that had been crucified would be left on the cross to rot, to deteriorate, for the birds to pick apart, and then thrown into a common public grave for criminals. But a man, a wealthy man named Joseph of Arimathea, comes and asks for permission to take the body of Jesus and to give it a proper burial. And he's granted that permission. And so he comes, Joseph of Arimathea, with Nicodemus. It says in John, he was accompanied by Nicodemus, who was also a Pharisee, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. That's the Nick at night. We've talked about that. And Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Why? For the embalming of this body. You see this gift at the very beginning of his life, and you see it brought again at the very end of his life. Now, what's interesting about all of these gifts is that they all point to who Jesus is and what he would do, but maybe more so this myrrh is the prophetic gift, not just in, in being the fulfillment of the prophecies, but also projecting the prophecy of what he would do and what would happen in and through him. And when you, when you, talk, about, when you talk about prophecy at Christmas, I mean, usually it's about two or three that you talk about. The one that gets the least mention is out of Micah, when it talks about uh, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. That's when the, the Magi were asking Herod, where's this, where's this kid to be born? And all the scholars went back, found it, and Micah said, it's Bethlehem. That, that we don't talk about that one a whole lot. The one that gets the most airtime is found in Isaiah, written 700 years before Jesus was born, and beautiful. And, and any, I'm telling you what, any preacher worth his weight in salt has preached these, these prophecies. They're, they're just beautiful. Isaiah 9-2 says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. That it was night and it was dark, but there's a dawning of a new day with this Messiah. It had been gloomy, but now there's hope and there is joy. You know why traditionally we celebrate Christmas on December 25th? It's because if you're not aware, in about four days, there's an event that happens on our planet. In the northern hemisphere, it is the winter solstice. And after the winter solstice, days start staying light longer. Are you ready for that? Yeah, amen, hallelujah. And just as there's this turning and now things are getting brighter, so we celebrate that Jesus came into this dark world and brought light to the world, hope and joy and, and a possibility of life. What a beautiful, beautiful prophecy. Or a few verses later when it talks about these titles of Jesus, for to us a child is born, to, a son, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, this one who will, who will lead us and guide us with truth and wisdom. Mighty God, this omnipotent, all-powerful one that will provide for us all the strength that we need, everlasting Father, the one who calls us into his family, gives us a belonging in his, as his sons and daughters who protects us, and the Prince of Peace, the one who brings calm in the midst of our chaos, 
What beautiful pictures, the prophecy of this one that would be born. And even the prophecy, these are 700 years before he was born. Even the prophecy that was made just months before he was born. When, Math, when uh, Joseph heard these words from Ma- in the book of Matthew, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. Here's the prophecy. Because he will save his people from their sins. What's not to like about that? How beautiful is that? The light that comes into the dark world, that dawns a new day, the, the wonderful counselor, the, the almighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, the savior of the world, saving us from our sins. But the messianic prophecies have a dark side as well. There's a bitter cup side to being the savior of the world. Because the prophecies not only point to the birth of Jesus, but right past the birth and point to the cross of Jesus. I have a friend, uh, Brent, part of our church. Brent, every year, puts together at his home a light display that would cause Clark Griswold to be jealous. Brent lives two, two miles from me, and so I see it every year. And it's amazing how Brent does this. I mean, he doesn't just like throw it out there and then He starts in November, and he starts with a little bit of light. And then he adds to it every day, every couple days, every week. And it just builds, and it gets bigger and bigger and grander and grander. And it just crescendos up through, through November into December into this time where it is just spectacular. And then after the holidays, he doesn't just unplug it. He takes it out. He decrescendos it. Just starts taking a little bit down, a little bit at a time. And then in January sometime, it'll all be done. And a few years ago, he said, I have a method to my madness. Because as the centerpiece of his entire light display is this huge 12-foot cross. He says, Bob, every year, the first thing that's lit up, the first thing that's plugged in is the cross. And then I start filling the house and the yard and everything else. And then I start taking it all down. And the very last thing to be unplugged is the cross. And I said, well, that seems a little odd. Cross, that's Easter, not Christmas. Why would he have that at the centerpiece of his Christmas light display? The cross has always been the centerpiece of the Christmas story. It wasn't just the birth of Jesus, but the prophecies would point past the birth to the cross of Jesus. How about this messianic prophecy in Isaiah 53 that says, surely he, Jesus, took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. It's what we talked about briefly last week. That big word, propitiation. Where the wrath of God against the sin and the shame and the guilt of our lives is satisfied in Jesus. And then the scripture goes on to say, we all like sheep have gone astray. We've gotten ourselves lost. But God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We all wander off. There's an old um, hymn. Sometimes we sing it around here. Come thou fount of every blessing. There's a line that says, prone to wander, God, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Like, Like there's this, this propensity in my own ignorance, in my own rebellion, in my own self-centeredness to just wander away from God. And God has sent his son 
to take all of my guilt and the punishment of my sin and my shame and puts it on Jesus. Or in verse 8, where it says, For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. I wonder. I wonder. Scripture says that all the things that happened at the birth of Jesus, that Mary treasured them in her heart and pondered on them. I wonder, this is purely speculation. I wonder if there were ever times when as she ponders all the mystery of this birth of this child, she ponders into these dark prophecies. I wonder if she ever ponders, what if the myrrh was more than just the anointing of a prophet or a priest or a king or the Messiah? What if it was about burial? What did that old man Simeon mean when a, when a sword would pierce my soul? What, what was that about? And all those prophecies from Isaiah that talked about the suffering Savior, his sacrifice, does that apply to my little boy? As she holds this little baby in those soft, tiny little hands, those chubby little feet, and that perfect little head. And she probably, no, 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 don't, don't think. It's just, it's too heavy. It's too dark. I can't go there. It was no surprise to God Verse 10 says, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Wait, wait, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. God says this was the plan all along. And though the Lord make his life a guilt offering, not for the guilt of Jesus, there was none. For my guilt, for your guilt, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Let's think about this for a minute. Because of what God did through Jesus, he's going to see his offspring. You know what? Right now, as I look around this room, I see the fulfillment of this prophecy. Because the offspring of what Jesus has done, the result of that is your life redeemed, forgiven, given new life and grace and hope. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy. And that his will would prosper in his hand. What is the will of God? Well, in 2 Peter, it says, God wills that none should perish and that all would come to repentance. In 1 Timothy, it says, God desires that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Can I just push pause here for a second? When we have been praying and fasting, asking you to pray and invite and bring your friends to Christmas Eve, it's not about just filling this room. It's not just about having thousands of people here. It's not just about getting big numbers so that our ego is stroked. It's fulfilling the will of God that people could know the truth about Jesus and the grace of God and his love for them, that it is good news of great joy for all people, and that maybe, just maybe, people who would be resistant to God or to church would at Christmas come in a large crowd saying, I can kind of be lost in the crowd here, and maybe, just maybe, they could come and hear the truth. That's why we're asking you to pray and invite and bring people, because who knows but that it wouldn't be next Sunday. When the Holy Spirit pierces their heart, their ears receive it, they see it, and their lives are transformed. It's why Jesus came. So pray, continue to pray, and bring friends, and ask God to do what only God can do. Verse 12, he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many, and made intercession 
for the transgressors. It's the whole reason he came. Jesus knew this. It didn't catch him off guard. I mean, he would always say, I've come to do the will of the Father. He would even predict this, especially as it got closer. He would tell his disciples what was going to happen. The time he says, you know, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Next slide, please. And to give his life as a ransom for many. He knew. He knew why he was coming. He knew what would happen. And he did it so that we could have life. What does it say in Hebrews? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. What's that joy? It's that we could have a right relationship with our heavenly father. We could be called sons and daughters of the most high God. We could be forgiven. We could have grace. We could have life. Last week, uh, we talked about how God had put together this imperfect transient system with the priest and the, and the incense and such. And how with Jesus, that which was imperfect became perfect. And that which was transient became permanent. And that which had to be repeated day after day was final and, and finished. And we talked about that. And in Hebrews chapter 7, we looked at part of this verse last week. It says, unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, for his, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. He's not just the great high priest. He's the Lamb of God. He's the sacrifice. He would be anointed as the Messiah. He would be embalmed and buried as the suffering Savior. And he would be raised to life to give us life. In Philippians uh, chapter 2, Paul writes to the church in Philippi, and there's a section in there that's kind of indented. Most scholars believe that it may have been a hymn that the early church sang in the first century. And it just talks about Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, being made, uh, taking on the nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And then it says, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That Jesus, the anointed one, identifies with us in our humanity. He identifies with us in our fallen, broken, sinful nature so that we could have life. That we have flesh and blood. Jesus said, I'll have flesh and blood. We have sin and guilt and shame. He says, I'll take their sin and guilt and shame. Hebrews chapter 2 says this, since the children, that's us, have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. See, this whole thing points to what Jesus would do. And myrrh was this glorious, horribly burdensome, bitter, beautiful gift. Glorious because he would be the anointed one, the Messiah. Horribly bitter because it would take him to the cross. And beautiful because it would allow us to live. Jesus was born to die so that he can give life. It's an amazing thing that he would do for us. Listen to these familiar words from this Christmas carol. 
Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Listen to this. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Birth into eternal life. That's why Jesus came. Romans 5 says this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, it's kind of an odd gift to give at a baby shower. It's kind of dark. Absolutely beautiful. Um, some of you, some of you are really involved with essential oils. And um, before I go any further, I just want you to know, I'm not selling anything here. Um, and in fact, I'm not endorsing or denouncing the use of essential oils. I'm not promoting or opposing it. It's fine. I, it may seem like I'm making fun. I might be. <laughs> but I'm okay with that. I mean, some of you are really into this, and, you, and, and it's great. I mean, you've got, you've got different fragrances and essential oils for everything that, that ails you. I mean, we know. We can smell you coming. You can tell by the smell that you aren't feeling well, and, and we know what you, you, you're anointing here and there and everywhere. Okay, I get all that. Okay, so, the whole, sorry. So the whole thing with essential oil is that the fragrance of whatever is the essence that has been extracted out of whatever plant, flower, bark, tree of this oil. It's the essence that's extracted out. But the word essential by itself Essential can also mean absolutely necessary, like imperative. So when it comes to our lives and the sin in our lives and our salvation and the redemption of our soul, you can't buy anything to fix that. When it comes to our souls, what ails our souls, that brings our salvation, there's only one truly essential oil, and it's the indispensable essence of Christ. It's what he's done. That he's anointed as our Messiah, the Savior of the world. He is embalmed as he gave his life, and he poured his life out, and he comes back from the dead, and he anoints my head with oil. The picture of salvation and of life. See, what's amazing is this white elephant gift that was given to Jesus, his finest gift, really pointed to the finest gift that Jesus would give to us. And that is forgiveness and life and salvation. I'll close with this. In John chapter 11, verse 2, there's a snapshot of an event that happened at another time in the Gospels. But in John 11, verse 2, there's a little cross, just passing reference to Mary, the sister of, of Martha and Lazarus. Lazarus. And it talks about 
the time in, in John 11 too, that she poured perfume on Jesus' feet. In John 11 too, the word perfume can also be translated myrrh. And because of what Jesus has done for her, he's forgiven her, he's given her grace, he's given her hope, he's redeemed her, he's accepted her, he calls her daughter, he gives her life and a future. She pours this out on his feet. And that Jesus has done the same for us. The only worthy response is that we would pour the same out on his feet. Not in oil, not in myrrh, not in some concoction of anointing oil, but in our humility, in our gratitude, in our worship, in our lives. And so today as we conclude this, this, this sermon, I, I want us to do this. And I I'm going to invite you to stand. Nathaniel and the, and the team are going to lead us in the song. And I asked for this song because there's a bridge in the middle of it, towards the end of it, that says, our affection, our devotion poured out on the feet of Jesus. Stand as we sing this, as we worship our great Savior. And then I'll close this in prayer.